can you hear me with this on? And can you hear me with this on? We'll try that again. For those of you who don't know me very well, I've served as a member of the armed forces for the last 29 years, uh, most recently as an army chaplain. And the retirement beard is a, is a definite thing. I retired on the 1st of October. And so this is three weeks into an eight week project. Uh, you are my family, I love you, let me know. If you love it, great, let me know. If you hate it, please tell me why. Okay, it's, it's, it's trial period, it's gonna go for eight weeks, but I just, I, anytime I come before you and, and there's a major change in what's going on, I don't want this to be distracting, so that's what's going on on my face. Now, let's take a look then at what's going on in this passage of Mark. In Mark, we're looking at a narrative. Okay, this is preaching and reading narrative is a little different than reading epistles. What we got this morning was a deep, meditative, thoughtful, thorough look at one verse of Scripture. Because epistles are packed together like that. You can do that kind of preaching, and then you, you learn a certain way to listen to that kind of preaching. Well, these Sunday nights as we go through Mark, we're in narrative. It takes a narrative a lot longer to make a single point. It doesn't happen in a sentence or in a paragraph. It could happen over several paragraphs. So in order to help us read narrative better, I just want you to understand kind of those, those things. And I'm going to spend the first, the, the introduction, which will be a little longer. You might be used to that by now. But the introduction, I'm going to walk we're going to scan through all the paragraphs in this section. I'm going to be preaching from 3.7 to 4.34. From 3.7 to 4.34. How on earth do you call that one section of Scripture? Well, that's what I hope to point out to you by the end of the introduction. But first, I want to kind of set this section in the rest of the context of the book. So what happens, Mark writes of Jesus' ministry, and after his first round of gathering followers, casting out demons, and healing, that happens from 1-1 to about 2-2, Jesus has a series of conflicts with the scribes over the Passover. You may remember that from Ben's passage last week. So what we have here in 3-7 to 4-34 are multiple developments in the selection and the preparation of Jesus' followers, including selecting future leaders. What's going to happen after this section is another round of gathering and deliverance and healing, just like the book opened with. It's like, and it magnifies, it just gets bigger. So we see Mark happening in cycles. And you may think, wait a minute, I remember Ben's sermon from last week. He preached 3.7 to 3.12. What are you doing? Something else about narrative it doesn't have the clean breaks that epistles do. You don't stop one subject and go on to another. Think of a tapestry where you've got several panels woven together and some of the threads go through one panel to the edge, through and well into the next panel. And Mark's gospel is beautifully interwoven. It is a masterful work of literature. And so some themes keep running through. In fact, that conflict theme that Ben finished uh, we're going to see actually culminates in this section here. That doesn't mean they were wrong to call that the section on conflicts because that's clearly, there are so many there, five or six stacked together, that section was clearly about conflict. Well, 
Let's walk through this section of Scripture and see if we can't determine what it's about. Well, how does this constitute a single legitimate section? And then I'll give you a, a, a proposal, and then we'll go back digging in deeper at certain points to get the main ideas out of it. So if the goal is to kind of help you read better and, and read narrative and understand the kinds of things that form boundaries in a narrative, that's what we're going to walk through first. Uh, the intermediate goal is to answer a question. I ask three questions of any text that I come to, and the first question I want to answer is, what is the author talking about? Just surface level, what's he talking about? So let's take a look at these paragraphs in this section and see if we can't figure it out. The last section, the author was talking about conflict, right? It happened over and over and over and repeated, and, and clearly that was what he's talking about. Well, what are we talking about here? Look with me at chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdraws from the sea to his disciples, a great multitude from Galilee followed. Now, the crowd is very important, Mark. It keeps appearing and, and, and fading from the scene and appearing and fading from the scene. Well, it faded from the scene in 2-2. That starts the conflict. The, the, the conflict started right after 2-2 with the calling of Levi and this series of conflicts. Well, the conflicts are done. The Pharisees, the, the scribes, are going to fade from the scene, and the crowd comes back in. So we're moving from one tapestry to another. That's how we know a section starts here. The, it's, you look for locations, you look for main characters, and you look for topic or subject. And if you see those three things change, you know you're in a new panel of the tapestry. Okay? So we're seeing a change in location, Jesus withdraws to the sea. He's been in the synagogues and, and kind of been around in the synagogues. He withdraws to the sea. There's a change in location with his disciples and the great multitude. So now we have a change in main players. The Pharisees fade from the scene. New panel. There's the start. As we walk through this panel, I want you to see something about the crowd. John the Baptist drew a crowd from all uh, Ju Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus draws a crowd from three different areas. He draws a crowd from Judea, Jerusalem and Judea. He draws a crowd from Idumea and beyond the Jordan. Those are areas south, but they are mixed areas. They're both Jewish and Gentile. And critically, he draws from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. These are almost exclusively Gentile areas. Word of this man has gone out, and they are coming to see and hear him, not worshiping the God he honors, not knowing anything else, but here's this man who is doing amazing things. Jesus' ministry of deliverance and healing has drawn a crowd that includes Jews and Gentiles. And that's a significant upgrade from John the Baptist. Also through this passage, it's been well explained, I'll just touch, the unclean spirits declare the full divinity of Jesus. What do they say about him? Verse 11, 
The unclean spirits saw him. They would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. That is his full exposure, full revelation of who he is. And immediately after that, there's a break. He earnestly warns him not to tell who he was. And we've talked about the mark in secret and what's that, what's going on? You feel the tension. I thought we're supposed to tell about Jesus. Jesus keeps telling things not to tell about him. What is all of that up with? We're going to get further answer in this passage as well. The next thing he talks about are drawing the disciples together. This is 13 through 19 of chapter 3. He names them, he calls them up, and he says they're called for three purposes, so that they can be with him, so that they can preach, and so that they can have authority over demons. But I want you to see the tie. Why tell one story about demons who declare who you are and then immediately go into a section about selecting those who are going to preach. Do you see the tie? One group is an unfit messenger. But that doesn't mean there aren't supposed to be messengers of his story. So Mark immediately turns and identifies the correct messengers about Christ and his kingdom. It is these 12 who will lead the way and his disciples with them. So why put those stories back to back? Sometimes an author puts them back to back because the topic bounces off of each other well. The demons are unfit messengers. The apostles are Christ's chosen messengers. Moving on to verse 20, we're going to go from 20 to 35. This is another section, and it's a Markin sandwich. Okay, this is a, a, a literary technique that Mark often uses. He'll start a story, he'll interrupt it with a center story, and then he'll go back to the story he started with. All the stories are related. The, the topic, the understanding of them fit together just like those first two I pointed out. Except instead of one after the other, you've got one in the middle of the two. What happens in this Mark and Sandwich, we get Jesus' family in verse 21. His own people heard of this. They went out to take custody of him. They were saying he lost his senses. He's lost his mind. We're going we're gonna to stop being embarrassed about Jesus and, and, and just call him home. We're going to take control of him. They're going to they're reestablish custody of Jesus. But while they're coming, here's a story in the middle. There's this conflict with the scribes, and it is the culmination, I think, of the conflicts he's been having with these scribes, the Pharisees, that, from Jerusalem. But then in verse 31, his family comes back on the scene. His mother and his brothers arrived. And you may wonder, out of Verse 21, when it says his people, how do I know that's his family? Well, when they show up on the scene, it's described as his mother and his brother. Some translations go ahead and put family instead of people, but the end of the story informs the beginning. It's clearly his mother and his brothers, and they send and call him. So there's that beautiful Mark and sandwich, and we'll look at it in more detail in just a little bit, but there's another sandwich. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. What happens in that section? The parable of the soils is given, verses 1 through 9. And the parable of the soils is explained, verses 13 through 20. But that leaves a gap. 
what happens between 10 and 12. That's the center of the sandwich. In that section, Mark gives the very purpose Jesus teaches in parables. We'll look very closely at that section. Pressing on, you get four, chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, parables about revealing secrets. Jesus says, a lamp on a lampstand. Do you hide it under a basket? Isn't it supposed to be revealed? We'll get back to that. Verse 24 and 25, a warning to listen. Then 26 through 32, there are two parables of the kingdom. There's one on the hidden growth of crops, 26 through 29. One on the mustard seed to becoming the tree of the garden in 30 through 32. And then there's a summary, 30, verse, chapter 4, verses 33 through 34. Let's read that real quick. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So having walked through the section, what's the author talking about? He's talking about parables. He's, the purpose for parables is the center of the sandwich in the middle. The close of the section is not about any one parable, but about teaching in parables. So the answer to our initial question, what's he talking about? Parables. How do I know this is the, the end of a section? I mean, it doesn't hit a chapter marker. It it's starts in one, it crosses over chapter division, and it doesn't get to the end of the next chapter. How do you know he's done? Well, let's look at 36. He's been talking with the crowd, right? We brought the crowd in at the beginning of this section. What happens in 36? Leaving the crowd, there goes one of our main characters. They took him along with them in the boat, and other boats were with him, and off they go to the other side. Excuse me, yeah, the evening came, he said, let's go to the other side, and they leave the crowd. So now we have a change in location, we have a change in main characters, and we're going to have a change in subject. We're going to go back to healing and exorcism and all of those things. End of a section. So it doesn't matter that it crosses, it crosses chapters, interrupts chapters. This is one section, 3, 7 to 434, is a section of teaching about parables. There's two other questions I ask of any text. One, what is the, if the first question is, what's the author talking about? Number two is, what's the author saying about what he's talking about? This is where you start to dig in a little bit. What's he, why is he talking about this? Or why is he talking about that? The third question is like it. What's the author trying to do by saying what he's saying about what he's talking about? What effect is the author trying to have? So to answer those two questions, what is Mark saying about parables? And what is the effect he's trying to produce by saying it? I'm going to look at the pair of purposes in the parables of Mark 3, 7 to 434. We're going to look tonight at the pair of purposes in the parables in Mark 3, 7 to 434. 
Purpose number one, to reveal truth to those in Christ. Reveal truth to those in Christ. To dig into this purpose, I'm going to ask who, what, and why. So there's three subpoints coming. Who is in Christ? First, his called. Look back at 3.13. He went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. His called are the ones who are with him, who are in him. And understand, when I say in Christ, if you are in Paul's letters, that means something much more full. Here at this point of development in the Gospels, it, mean, it means less, but not a ton less. It just doesn't have the fullness of being in Christ when Paul would write it. Because a lot happens developmentally between Mark and Paul. But nevertheless, there's a dichotomy here between those who are outside and those who are inside. So who is inside? Who is in Christ? First, his called, 313. Next, the forgiven. How are they described? They're described as the forgiven. Look at 328. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. So characteristic of those who are in Christ is they are forgiven. Also characteristic of those in Christ, they do the will of God. 335. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's critical to Jesus to be in him is to do the will of God. Next, his followers, who is in Christ? His followers who pursue knowledge. His followers who pursue knowledge. I get this from 4.10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. Just hearing the parable wasn't enough. They pursued further knowledge, further information, further understanding. And that marks them as those who are inside. What else marks those in Christ? Those who listen to the correct voice. Those who listen to the right voice. Look at 424. He was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. Take care who you listen to. Listen to the right voice. It marks those who are in Christ. And finally, the characteristic, the, a, a name, a, a comment of those who are in Christ in 434, his disciples. The word disciple means one who learns by doing. Similar to an apprentice, somebody who learns a, a craft or a trade by actually physically working and doing it. A, a follower of Christ is one who actually follows Christ. 
does the things that he did, loves the way that he loved, teaches the way that he taught. A learner by doing is a disciple. And it, those who live like Christ show the characteristic that they are in Christ. So if that's who is being, this truth is being revealed to, what do the parables do for them? What do the parables do to reveal truth to those in Christ? Well, first thing is something they don't do. They don't give comprehensive understanding. Look at 4.13. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? They've heard the parable, but they don't completely understand it. It's partly why they pursue for their knowledge. But understand the parable by itself does not give full understanding. There is part of this marking secret, this pace of revelation that God is setting out that can't be rushed. And parables help put the brakes on. But if they don't give comprehensive understanding, they do reveal some of the mystery of the kingdom. They do reveal some of the mystery of the kingdom. Look at verse 411. He was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables. But those who are inside also get parables. You have to have the parable to get the explanation. You have to have the initial information in order to know you need to seek more. So those inside still get parables. And those parables do reveal, in God's unfolding time, some of the mystery of the kingdom. It's their, one of their purposes. Next, the parables preserve the secret until due time. They preserve the secret until due time. I get this from chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. He was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? Shouldn't a lamp that's brought in be displayed? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. But Jesus has given them the mystery, the secret of the kingdom. It will come to light. It should come to light, but not quite yet. And so the purpose of parables for those who are in Christ at this point is to preserve the secret until due time. When's the due time? I don't want to steal thunder from somebody coming forward, but one indicator of due time comes in chapter 9, verse 9 of Mark. Chapter, verse, chapter 9, verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, this is after the transfiguration, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So that's going to be a major marker. At what time should these secrets, more of them, be unfolded? What time should more of them be revealed? At what point is it not secret and should it be proclaimed? There's a major marker until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. 
Another thing parables do for them, it prepares them for the surprise of humble beginnings yielding glorious results. Look at 26 through 32, the parable of the seed. He was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The farmer throws the seed on the ground and he sleeps and he wakes up and he sleeps and he wakes up and soon enough, plants rise up and when the plants are mature, they're food. They go from seeds scattered on the ground to food. He doesn't know how, but he knows that it does. You get something small that becomes something great. You also get the parable of the mustard seed. The tiniest little seed It's not quite physically the tiniest. The point is, it's a tiny little seed that when planted becomes a shrub or a bush that is up to nine feet tall. That is a huge outcome from a tiny little beginning. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what the parables help Jesus' hearers to understand. Lastly, what the parables do for them is that they, they help measure out truth in doses they can absorb. Parables help measure out truth in doses they can absorb. I get this from 4.33. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. So if that's who gets parables and what the parables do, why are they given the truth in parables? And I have two reasons why. Number one, why are they given the truth as opposed to those outside? They pursue the truth. We already read 4.10. They sought further information from the parables and it was given to them. They're also given the truth because of the quality of their listening. The verb to listen or to hear shows up 10 times in chapter 4. It is a big deal. 4.3. Listen to this. 4.9. He was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 4.15. These are the ones who are beside the road when the word is sown, and when they hear, they give their response. 16, 18, likewise, the, the, all, all four of the soils, they respond after they hear. 23 and 24, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And 24, take care what you listen to. Why are those inside given the truth in parables? Because of the quality of their listening. It marks them as inside. They get the secrets to the kingdom. They get the further explanations because they are listening and they are driving after truth. And so, because they are in Christ, because the parables have a purpose, because the truth is given in those parables, the pur first purpose of parable is to reveal truth to those who are in Christ. The second purpose of parables is to conceal truth 
from those outside of Christ. Who is outside of Christ? Those opposed to the establishing of his kingdom. We saw very briefly, that's in the Mark and Sandwich, that's his family who are coming to keep him quiet and keep him contained and control. It's also the blasphemous scribes from Jerusalem who come and say, Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. The third group outside of Christ in this section are the unresponsive crowds. Jesus is teaching parables to the crowds. The disciples, the 12, are in the crowd. The distinction between them is that they respond, the crowds do not. They resemble the seed that's been snatched, that's been choked, that's been on shallow soil and and withered. So that's who is outside of Christ. What do the parables do to them? One response. The parables effect judgment. The parables effect judgment. Look at 4.12. To those who are outside, get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. That is a quote from Isaiah 6. Excuse me, yeah. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. We need to take a look. I know time is short. There's so much more in Isaiah that Mark alludes to that I'm not saying we have to look at what he directly quotes. This is Isaiah's commission. Isaiah's being sent to the people of Israel. Chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah are God's laying out his case. It's like he's in court and he's laying out his case. I am going to prosecute my people, Israel. They are unfaithful, and my judgment is going to fall. Chapter 6, Isaiah comes on the scene. He meets with God. He gets commissioned. Verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. He says, go and tell this people, keep on listening and do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Interesting, when Mark copies that verse, he, doesn't, he, he defines the sense of healed. Healed can be broad things. It could be physical. It could be something else. When Mark copies it and, and cites it, it's that they may return and be forgiven. The parables are given to those outside so that they have enough information to be condemned, but not enough information to be forgiven and saved. That is a hard thing. That is uncomfortable to say. It's uncomfortable to think about. But if we have established Jesus' authority in all of these other realms as we've looked through the gospel of Mark, we must leave to Jesus the authority to judge and to condemn. Those are within his authority as well, and he uses parables to do so. Why is the truth hidden from them by parables? 
the quality of their listening. I've gone through all the commands to listen, all the importance of listening, the effect of listening well or hearing but not heeding. If you hear and don't heed, that's like seed that gets snatched up. The quality of their listening is why the truth is hidden from them. Next, they call evil good and good evil. Look at Isaiah. I'm going to flip back to Isaiah. I'll just read it. Isaiah 5.20. Right? This is the, kind of the end of the, the lawsuit that God is bringing against his people. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who accuse Jesus of working by the power of Satan. Jesus says that is an unforgivable sin. They have called evil good and good evil. In their hardened hearts, they have refused to acknowledge the truth of Christ. Now, they've gotten to the state of his authority. They understand that he has authority. They've gotten to the scope of his authority. They understand he has authority over everything on earth, and they understand he has authority over even the demons. What they're denying is the source of his authority. They are accusing it of being from Satan, because they will not acknowledge that his authority comes from God. And Jesus says that is calling evil good and good evil, and it is the hallmark of earning judgment. It is unforgivable. So parables are for providing truth to those inside, They are for concealing truth from those outside. So what? I mean, this is back in the gospel. You've already talked about there's there's great developments when Jesus rises from the dead. There's great development when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and the church is born. There's been great development through our understanding and we now have a complete canon. We have all of the wisdom of God that we're going to get in his book? How does this relate to us? I have three applications, and they're quick. Number one, you who are in Christ should listen carefully to the right voice. If you don't pull it from Mark, we certainly had a sermon series where, out of Hebrews where this was entirely the point Listen to the right voice. As far developed as we are, this is still a necessity for us. We should learn it from this passage as well as Hebrews and others. And not only listen, not only hear, but heed. Live out what you do know and seek more. We are never done learning what this book has for us and its intricacy, and its beauty, and its majesty, and the glory that it reveals. So, be a learner by doing, do what you know it says, and keep looking for what to do next. Number two, accept that there is still mystery. We know much more than this crowd, these disciples did at this point in the gospel story but we don't know it all. 
there are aspects we would love to know, that we would love to look into. And as we talk about end times, looking in Thessalonians, we must accept some things have been revealed to us and some things have not. So be faithful with what you know. Accept you won't know it all. Finally, if those two apply to those who are in Christ, what about those who might be here outside Christ? You've heard the word. You've, you've kind of been around this thing. You may be dragged to church by a spouse, parent, friend. You might just come because it's your, what your family does. But it's not terribly interesting to you. You don't pursue the knowledge what, that you hear when you're in this room. It, your Bible stays at rest all week until you're back in this room. Be on the inside with Christ. If you are outside and you recognize it, be inside. Pursue the truth. Listen wisely because you don't have to stay outside. Jesus' family was outside at this point in Mark, but Jude and James clearly transition from outside to inside. How do I know? They became leaders in the early church and they authored books of the New Testament. I'm pretty confident they transitioned from outside to inside and you can too. Do not stay outside of Christ having heard the truth tonight. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for telling us in joy that we can be forgiven. Thank you for warning us that we could be condemned. Thank you most of all for making a way to move from being condemned to being forgiven. May we walk that path faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen.